Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the second installment of our series, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I really hope that something was stirred up in you just in that time of worship in terms of just a confidence and a peace that is available to us in God. In fact, I want to pray before we go any further because sometimes we like rush on and yet I feel like God might actually be wanting to, to just seal something that, that he was trying to get our attention on in the worship. So Father, I just pray that you would help us, please, to be sensitive to you Lord, that we would be present, that we'd be focused, that more than anything else, we would hear you and see you and obey you. Help us, God, to see your faithfulness. Help us to see that you really are the light of the world, able to dispel darkness. I love, I love how that song talks about causing darkness to tremble. God, where you are, there can be no darkness because you are Light And so, Father, wherever there may be an area in our lives right now where we are just needing to have a fresh perspective to see things the way that you see them, God, would you remind us of your light, of your love, of your power, and help us to surrender to your leadership in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started off this series focusing on the Beatitudes, which is, which is very much taking a look at the attitudes of a follower of Jesus, as well as the blessings that are attributed to the followers of Jesus. Um, just as a quick recap, that, that was describing the character of a follower of Jesus. It's not, it's, not, it's not referring to different strengths that different people have. It's actually, no, no, if we're following Jesus, then increasingly we are gonna be those things. We're gonna be humble, we're gonna be meek, we're gonna be pure, we're, we're going to uh, be resilient in the face of, of persecution. We're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, so the closer that I'm drawing to God, the more that is going to define my character. And then I love how, how there are almost like these blessings that are guaranteed. So just like, just like all of those items describe our character in the same way, all of those blessings describe what God makes available to us, how we will experience the kingdom of heaven, how how he will lift us up, how we will be filled, how he will comfort those who mourn. There's just so much in the Beatitudes that describes the blessings and the attitudes. And as we go into this next section today, which is a section that is dangerously well known to a lot of Christians about salting, being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, I want to encourage you to try and listen or read with fresh eyes. And if you've never heard this before or read this before, great. Like you're, you're exactly where I want you to be because hopefully you'll actually catch this with, with a fresh mind and a, and a fresh heart. But 
The reason I'm referring back to last week is because it's important that we read this in context. What we're about to read about how Christians are to be the salt and the light of the world, it's in the context of literally just coming out of Jesus describing how you're going to be persecuted. So if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, if you are trying to grow in knowing him, obeying him, following him, and, and actually trying to be a blessing to the world around you, there are going to be times where people are going to oppose you. And not just for being a jerk or for being all preachy or for having a bad attitude, but, but actually oppose you because, because you, you love God. And because even, as, even something as significant yet offensive as the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. Like if we actually believe that Jesus is the only way, if, if we believe that there's no way for us to make a way to forgive our own sins, if we believe that Jesus, that it was only because of what Jesus did at the cross that, that we can have a right relationship with God completely for free, nothing that we can add to that. You have to understand that for a lot of people that is blatantly offensive. And, and, and we should be able to understand why because it is, it does sound prejudicial. It does sound... Exclusive, And so the fact that people might oppose that doesn't change the truth. And so how do we actually respond? How do we still serve as salt and light in a world that might find the message of Jesus really offensive? So let's, let's carry on where we ended off last week looking at Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 onwards where it says, so this is kind of the, the last beatitude and then going into the, fo- the focus of today. Blessed are those who are persecuted for, because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. So if it's because of Jesus, like you're actually blessed if you're being persecuted because of that. And then verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Like, actually, like it's weird, right? That's why if you didn't tune in last week, let me just remind you, everything about the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, by, by the way, remember, in heaven. Doesn't mean you're gonna doesn't mean that you're gonna be vindicated here on earth. It doesn't mean that you're gonna not be misunderstood or that eventually people will come around. Sometimes that is the case, but that's not the promise. The promise is in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then I love how John Stott, in his little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says that the world will undoubtedly persecute the church. But it is the church's calling to serve this persecuting world. I think that's the heart of God. Again, it's so counterintuitive. Our human nature is, hey, you're rude to me, I'm going to be rude back to you. You fight against me, I'm going to fight back. The kingdom is countercultural, where actually you love your enemies. You bless those who curse you. The world will undoubtedly persecute the church, but it is the church's calling to serve this persecuting world. Jesus goes on, just having finished describing persecution, to say, you are the light, sorry, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That is a hectically sobering passage of scripture. Then he goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. We are meant to bring the light 
of Jesus wherever we go. In the same way, I love verse 16. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I believe that this passage is describing the kind of people, remember, this is Jesus' manifesto. This is the clearest description anywhere in all the library of Scripture where Jesus is describing what his people would look like, what, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to bring, the, the attitudes, the mindsets that we're meant to have. He is describing that our light, the good deeds of our light should shine out for others so that they will see how good God is. Not, not just be impressed with you. Maybe, maybe they'll be a little bit impressed with you and think highly of you. I mean, I think it's a good thing if you actually have credibility. But the goal is that eventually they get to a place where they're thinking, there has to be something else here. And where they ultimately actually see how good God is. Is. And so all I'm wanting to address very, very quickly today is just how we, as the meek, the mourning, <laughs> the, the, the pure, the poor in spirit, how can we actually be salt and light that actually makes a difference? So let's take a look at just a couple of qualities of salt. Three sorts around salt very quickly. The first is that salt preserves, especially before refrigeration or still maybe in, in areas without refrigeration. Salt would be used and, and often would be rubbed into the meat or the fish, whatever the case is, to actually preserve it from contamination, from, from decaying. So obviously some people have suggested, and I think this makes a lot of sense, that Christians being the salt of the earth are meant to in many ways actually slow down or prevent the decay, the very real decay of the world around us. You might, find, you might feel like you are the only person at school or at work, or I think it's especially hard when you're the only person in your family who actually loves God and is trying to follow Him. And you might feel like there's nothing that you can do. But I want to encourage you that even just a little bit of salt can preserve a little bit of meat. You, you, you may be slowing down the decay more than you realize just because you are a follower of Jesus, because you bring love and joy and peace and patience and kindness to the environment around you. Obviously, Christians can become contaminated by the impurities of the world. And you see, what's interesting with salt is that as one of the most stable uh, substances, it, it, it's not really all that likely to lose its saltiness. It's more a case of it being mixed in with impurities. And so, in order for us to be able to preserve the culture around us or the people around us, or we need to actually do everything we can to prevent ourselves from being contaminated by all kinds of impurities. Uh, if there's nothing to distinguish, a genuine follower of God from someone who has no relationship with God, well then we are sufficiently contaminated. Then, then, then we are sufficiently mixed in and the salt has lost its saltiness and ultimately becomes worthless. I believe, by the way, that, that salt and us actually being a preserving agent refers to our character. We'll take a little bit more of a look at that in a moment. But I think that, I think for us to, to have a level of purity. Now, I'm so cautious with this point because I think that it's easy for us to be discouraged and to think, well, I'm so far from being pure enough. I'm so far from having enough character. And, and that that may be the case. I don't think anyone's ever going to be perfect at it, but I do want to encourage you that it is something that we can actually continue 
to grow in as we keep surrendering our hearts to God and allowing Him to make a difference in our lives. So even if, you're, even if you have no credibility in your family, at work, school, I think just even being patient and allowing God to, to form His fruit in your life slowly but surely, I think that that might even speak more. So please don't use your newness or weakness or immaturity or or your failure, please don't use that as an excuse to stop being salt. I would argue that if people can actually see your life changing, that might actually make you even more salty. That might actually make you even more influential where people are like, wow, he used to be really selfish or, or really arrogant or used to be the biggest gossiper or used to be the most aggressive. To actually see a trance, I, I am convinced Honestly, that outside of a blatant life-changing revelation from God like Paul on the road to Damascus, I would say that the most significant testimony, the most significant um, example of what would lead someone to God is someone seeing a life changing before their eyes. So please, please don't give up. Don't think, well, I'm not charismatic enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. I don't have it all together. I'm making lots of mistakes. And again, that's especially hard when you're living at home and people know, know you better than anybody else. How much more so <laughs> will your family stand back eventually and take note where they're like, wow, he's not like he used to be or she's not like she used to be. All right, so salt preserves. Secondly, salt seasons. And I like this part because I enjoy salt. My family would say I enjoy it a little bit too much. But this is obvious, right? That, that's, well, in my opinion, this is an easy one. Salt seasons the food. It, it, it adds a dynamic to the food. And I believe that in the same way, slowly but surely, we are to bring God's joy. We are to bring God's hope. We are to bring some level of peace, some level of, of calm, self-control, goodness and faithfulness where, where people are like, I, I really like it that that person is around. It's seasons. And then third, salt is sprinkled. Now, this is where my family and I have a difference of opinion because they think I sprinkle too much onto my food, and they may be right, but don't tell them. But the idea, right, is that no one wants to eat a whole bowl of salt, okay? It'll probably kill you. But which, which, makes, me, which makes me realize how ineffective Christians are if we're all just lumped together in one bowl. So that's why a church is not effective if a church is just focused on the church. The church's purpose is to actually be salt that gets out of the salt shakers and gets sprinkled into the communities around them. Now, now I'm going to say something cautiously because, because there are times where I feel like this is relevant. But, but, the, but the, the wrestle or the battle that goes on with me sometimes, like when we've had discussions about should we do a fun run or a fun walk, should we do something in the community, um, there, there are times where that is, where that is I think, valuable and practical for different reasons, but, but a lot of the time what gives me caution is I feel like, I wonder if we wouldn't be more effective if more Christians got involved in clubs and sports teams and, and joined a, a different fun run and, and fun walk or, or just got into governing bodies, got, into, got onto teams where, where slowly but surely you're being sprinkled. So I don't think we're all meant to be, uh, listen, salt that is focused is ugly. Now, I don't want to overanalyze over this analogy, right? I'm just saying that it's, it's a little bit more attractive. It's, it's a little bit more appealing. So when you're thinking, well, I'm the only one, maybe that's okay. Maybe God, like what if you weren't there, then there would be no one. So salt is sprinkled. Two thoughts on, 
on light very quickly. The first is so obvious, right? Light dispels darkness. Like you actually just can't help it, right? If, if, if you're sitting in a cupboard and, and the light is completely blocked out, but the lights are on in the room and someone opens the door, the darkness doesn't spill out of the cupboard into the room and suddenly make the room darker. The light from the room s- spills over into the cupboard. And I think in the same way, the p- God's purpose is for us to be, even if it's just in small parts, f- like spilling out, I think it is important that we not only reject evil personally, spiritually, but where we, but where we, so, so by the way, when I say reject evil, I don't mean where you're judging others and telling others what not to do. That's, that's not your role. If they're not a believer, it's not your role to tell people what to do. I'm saying though that, that, that if you don't participate in something that's evil or if you don't contribute towards deception, a lie, fraud, etc., I'm just saying that that you might actually protect your company, <laughs> you might actually protect your family as you choose not to participate in something that you know is evil. You would need a lot of wisdom and that's why I think that we need, we need to hear God. I think one of our, one of our prayers should be, God, please show me what it looks like today to be salt and to be light. God, as I go into, back into the, whatever your environment is tomorrow, God, help me to see what it looks like to be salt and to be light. Second thought about light is that it reveals the path. You know, when it's completely dark, you can't see <laughs> where the path is. And if you've ever been walking you know, on, a, on a dangerous footpath or in a jungle and there's no light, like you are bound to stumble. You're bound to knock into stuff. Some of you might have been out in, in nature where there's no other light. Um, or maybe, I, I remember uh, years ago walking down Lion's Head um, long after the sun had gone down and, and technically it was dark. But because it was full, a full moon, it was amazing how my eyes could actually adjust to, to that ambient light that was being presented by the moon that I could actually see the path to climb down the mountain. And I think in the same way, without being judgy and without being pushy, I wonder if we're not meant to in some ways just, just shine a little light on the path. Just, just shine a little light on the way that leads to life. Not, by the way, the light doesn't force the person to take the path. The light isn't the path. The light just illuminates, like it just reveals a bit of the path. Anyway, these are just a few thoughts about what salt and light are. Here are five quick applications before I pray for you. The one first is to simply be good. I think for us to be salt and to be light, we have to be good. Now again, I mentioned just now, you might be discouraged at how not good you are. Well, again, let me just encourage you to keep surrendering your life to God. And, and I'd, even, I'd even encourage you to go back to the passage from last week, the beginning of Matthew 5, and just take a look at the Beatitudes. Just take a look again. Keep reflecting on the attitudes of a follower, where we are humble, where we do, where we do grieve and mourn our sin, and where we're willing to own it. People aren't looking for perfect people. I think people really like humble people. So when you mess up, when you're the cause of the conflict, or you've added to the conflict, or you've added to deception, or you've gossiped, and you didn't really mean to, but you did mean to, when you're caught out, just own it. Be good. Be, being good is not being perfect, right? It is just cont- it's to, it's growing in character, which means that we are growing in integrity. We are growing in our reliability, in honesty, in humility. 
And by the way, I also think that being good is also sometimes just having good manners. I think, I think that there's a lot to be achieved by just saying thank you or please or greeting people or when someone greets you and say, hey, Jason, how are you doing? To actually respond with, I'm good, thanks, or I'm okay, or how are you? But, to, but to, I just think good manners can add to warmth and I think that it can build bridges. I think I might have mentioned this some time ago where I was reading the autobiography of Dallas Willard. One of the, I think, arguably one of the most significant certainly the most significant Christian philosophers of the 20th century going into the beginning of the 21st century. And in the end, he landed up being the head of the philosophy department um, at UCLA, which would be an incredibly secular, very progressive university in California. And, and, and his colleagues, many of his colleagues, were, were very put off by his Christian views. Not that he ever lauded that over people, he, but, but, the, but the books that he wrote that actually got the most attention were, were books. The one, probably the most important one, was called The Conspiracy, The Divine Conspiracy, which actually addresses the Sermon on the Mount. And so, and so where his colleagues were a little bit, you know, concerned about this Christian guy, it really stood out to me how many of them, after years, Right? Years. Not, not he had one profound thought and boom, you know, their eyes were open. No, no. After years of just seeing his goodness, his consistency, his, his love, his kindness. In his case, I don't think it was his message as much as his, his, actual, his actual carrying the message, living out the message. He was a good man. And he has affected, I think, in many ways, millions of people as a result. Not because he just had good thoughts, but, but you, if you listen to anyone that had any kind of meaningful interaction with him, their lives were encouraged and inspired by a humble, humble, godly man. So we need to be good, number one. Number two, we need to do good. So we need to be good, but yes, we also need to do good. We read just now in Matthew 5 or 16 that in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And if you've been around our church for any length of time, you, you would have probably heard us make reference to this idea, which, by the way, actually stems from Dallas Willard's writings, where he speaks about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus would do if he were me. This idea of being with Jesus. So, so that's me actually first and foremost nurturing an intimate, healthy relationship with God where, where I'm growing in that relationship. I'm, I'm creating space regularly. And cons- By the way, nothing that we ever teach in this church will ever take root in our lives if we don't get this first part right, if we don't get focusing on being with Jesus right. If, if we don't get the being with Jesus right, which is the relationship, it at best, it can only be religion. If it's not coming out of relationship, out of connecting with him and being loved by him and loving him. But as we do that, so please, this order matters. This order is life and death, in my opinion. We need to first be with Jesus, so build that relationship. Secondly, we can't help it. We will become like Jesus. So, so we're, again, fruit is going to be formed. But then... Again, I think almost without helping it, we're going to land up being able to discern and do what Jesus would do if he were me. If he were a grade eight at Bosmansdam High or at Millington High or wherever, Bloberg's, 
what, what, who, what would Jesus do? Who, how would he behave if he was a grade eight girl or guy? Or if he was a single parent of three hooligans right now who are driving you up the wall and you feel a little bit more like Satan than you do like God? What would he do when you're tired and exhausted and just, and just falling to pieces? See, this is why it's so important that we don't compare our lives to other people because lives have so many different dynamics and personalities and capacities. Okay, but if, I'm, but if I'm regularly being with Jesus, I will become like Jesus, I will increasingly discern and do what Jesus would do if he were me. We need to be good, we need to do good, and number three, we need to see people. We need to see people. I almost feel like this is the part of the message that, that for me personally has, has the, the heaviest burden, and it's my prayer that we will pray to see what Jesus sees, to actually see people the way that Jesus sees people. Again, I want to remind you that his kingdom is countercultural. We are to love our enemies. We are to bless those who curse us. You'll see later on in the series, whenever we get to it, because there's so much to get to, but at some stage, the passage where it talks about turning the other cheek, like you read this stuff, and, and some people have argued, by the way, that this, that this is impossible, that the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible standard to maintain, that, that, it's, that it was very, you know, just idealistic. It was Jesus being, you know, just kind of like dreaming in a vacuum. But I want to argue, and I will continue to argue, that with God it is possible that we will become like Jesus and do what Jesus would do, where on the cross he's asking God to forgive the people that are literally murdering him. He's seeing his mother grieving in front of him. He sees the suffering that this is causing, and yet he forgives. We need to see people. So here's my question. Maybe there's someone at work, at school, in your family, who, who you might not want to use the words hate, but there is an indifference. There is so much frustration. Is it possible that God wants us to see them and others differently? I think one of the reasons why he encourages us to pray for people is because it's hard, if not impossible, to consistently pray for someone that you don't like or can't stand or that you are bitter towards. It's, it's, it's impossible, I would say, to consistently over a lengthy period of time keep praying for someone and maintain the same heart towards them. I can't explain it to you. God does something in our hearts. Something spiritual starts to take place as our hearts become melted, as we become aware of just how much God has forgiven us of. And, and not just in the past, but in the present, how God still continues to be patient with us and kind and loving and gracious. So, I mean, that's an extreme case. I'm talking about seeing people like that, but, but let's just also notice people. Let's value people. Your purpose on earth is never just to achieve a task. Even if your work and your gifts are task-oriented, if it's not to serve people, it's for nothing. It is all about people. Jesus didn't die for a task. Jesus didn't die for a goal. Jesus didn't die for a building. Jesus died for people. People are not just a number. They're not just someone to get onto a scorecard that you can be impressed with one day when you get to heaven. The point I'm trying to make is that for some of us, we could be more concerned with, with getting results and with actually seeing a life change. God, help me to see people. Help me to love people. Every number has a name. Every name has a story. Every story matters to God. God, help me to have compassion. Help me to be, help me to be merciful. Help me to be kind. 
Some of you have heard the statement from John Maxwell before where he talks about how our responsibility has more to do with connecting with people than correcting people. Don't ever focus on correcting someone. If we see people, our first priority is to connect. And Carrie Newhoff comments on how very few people, I would argue no one ever gets judged into life change. Many people get loved into it. So again, I'm just taking the pressure off you. You don't have to correct anyone. You don't have to change anyone. Let's connect. Let's love and I believe it makes a difference. We need to be good. We need to do good. We need to see people. Number four, we need to serve people. And I think this is pretty obvious, but again, it's just looking for ways to be a blessing. How can I add value? How can I encourage? Where can I help? God, help me to know when I need to listen. Again, you know, maybe at home or, or at the office or even at school sometimes, I guess, but that's a little bit more tricky because then you look like a suck up. But, but like, are there chores that can be, like, are there ways for you just to, just to add value and just to be a blessing. Be sensitive to opportunities to give, to, to maybe buy someone a cup of coffee uh, without going into debt, you know, or buy a meal, or just, just be a blessing. Just, just help, just help out. I've got to tell you, and this might sound strange to you, but, but even on our staff, like we've, we've, got a, we've got a group of young guys that have been working with us the first half of this year. And I've got to tell you that I am genuinely, regularly amazed at their attitudes towards helping each other out. It's not their lane, it's not their, their focused area of work, but how often they are willing to just jump in and help one another out and encourage one another. Um, the reason I'm getting fat in part is because they keep buying us stuff, you know, like lunch and chocolates and coffee. Anyway, that's not the real reason. It's just lack of self-control. But, 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 but I've got to tell you, that I think that, that, that there's a real life-giving environment, not because of one person or because someone's amazing. There's, just, there's an attitude that I think is a real blessing. Number five, finally, just the last point, is that I believe we need to share with people. We need to see people, we need to serve people, and we need to share with people. I think it is important that our lives are life-giving enough for people to want to know why. And it's this whole idea of good works should lead to good will, which should lead to the good news. Guys, if people never know why you are kind or forgiving or patient or gracious or trying to grow in your self-control or trying to grow in integrity or trying to grow in your excellence, if people don't know why, if people don't know why. And so I do think that that should probably be lost in terms of the order of priority because I think it's really helpful to earn credibility and to build you know, some rapport, but the goal is for people to give our Father glory. The goal is not for them just to think you're amazing. The goal is not just to wish that you were around more. That's, that might feed our ego, but that's not gonna change their eternity. What's gonna bring healing and wholeness in this life, and what's gonna lead to an eternity with God, is only gonna be if they actually know that God is behind the goodness, that it is because of our hearts being melted by his kindness and goodness that we can't help but want to pass it on. And in closing, I wanna, I wanna remind you that heaven and hell are real. They're not just metaphors. I mean, there might be debate over like the dynamics and what that means exactly, but, but there is an eternity with God and there's an eternity apart from God. And you know, I've been thinking recently, just even around this idea of, you know, if you're a parent, you probably can't help 
I mean, you've got a whole different problem if you can help loving your kids. I would argue that most parents can't help but love their kids. And when you love your children and they're struggling or they're lost, they're going down a self-destructive path. But, 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 but more specifically, they're lost, right? They, they can't find their way home and they're wanting to find, there's a difference between being lost and just being rebellious, right? But being lost is when they don't know where to go. What wouldn't you do? What wouldn't you do? What, what price wouldn't you pay? What sacrifice wouldn't you be willing to endure to help your lost child find direction? Again, there's a, there's a difference between lost and rebellious. Rebellious is when they know the way but are choosing not to. In fact, I almost have this imagery in my mind of the movies Taken, which I know is a little bit hectic. But you know where Liam Neeson, he's, he's, he's just killing everybody and fighting and putting his life at it. Now, I'm not suggesting you go, you're going to miss the rest of the message I just gave. But, but don't miss this. God has shown us the price he was willing to pay. Jesus literally sacrificed his life so that those who are lost can be found. And part of the way of helping show the way is his people being light, helping light the path, helping love people, lead people, where we are determined, not just for our own sake or just for our own promotion, but actually for the sake of being salt and light, that we actually care about our character. We care about who we are at work. We care about who we are trying to be at home. And we're not just trying to fake it. We're actually genuinely allowing God to do something in us because what wouldn't God do? What wouldn't a loving father do to show a lost son or daughter the way home? So I want to invite you just to close your eyes for a moment, please. And just to reflect for a few moments, allowing God to maybe even just show you just a little bit of that heart that he has. What wouldn't I do? Maybe you're even just needing a fresh revelation of that today. That you were worth that price. The purpose behind what Jesus did on the cross is not to make you feel guilty. It's to make us grateful. It's to help us trust Him. It's to help us follow Him. It's to help us say, yes, please, thank you so much. Thank you that I cannot add anything to that. What wouldn't God do? Not only did He send Jesus, but he's also sending you and he's sending me. And part of what he's willing to do is even in a persecuting world, call his followers to love, to serve, to see, to share, to care. Father, help us not only to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. God, as we go into our different environments, Again, for some of us, it's with our family today. For others, it's as we go to work tomorrow, those that are going back to school and university a few weeks from now, God, help us. Lord, whatever the environment, help us to be salt and to be light. And Father, for anyone that's watching this or listening to this, that is not yet in a relationship with you, God, please, 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 help them to take that most important next step in saying yes to a relationship with you. Accepting the forgiveness that Jesus has earned and choosing to follow one step at a time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.